Hello and welcome to another conversation on the Lewis and Kyle show. Andy Johns is our guest today. He returns for a part two just a few weeks after part one. Why was that? Well, I had booked that podcast right before a meeting I really couldn't miss, and we had to cut it short after 50 minutes. And the three of us were like, we really did not cover everything we wanted to cover. So that's why this is an hour and 50 minute podcast on all the things we wanted to get to in round one that we were not able to. For those of you who missed part one, Andy John's background is pretty cool. He was a growth guy for eight really high-end Silicon Valley startups. He was at Facebook in the super early stages, Twitter in the super early stages, Quora in the super early stages. That's the Q&A website. It's like the 10th most popular website, though. Everyone knows about it, but they don't know about it. And then he was at one point towards the end of his career, the president of Wealthfront, and then a couple other really high-profile roles in early-stage investments in companies like Robinhood and Webflow. Really successful, high-achieving career. But Andy recently basically turned that all down and stopped it all to become this mental health teacher and self-experimenter and kind of patient, if you will, trying to improve his own mental health and do all these various involved treatment protocols. He spent 45 days in a tier one mental hospital, checked himself in. Uh, now he you know, is a writer to 5,000 people about mental health. And he reached that 5,000 subscriber milestone after fewer than 10 essays, which is pretty bizarre. Good for him. They're, they're really good. So that's not surprising. Everyone shared them, which is how he grew. Anyway, this conversation, that's enough about Andy. We discuss why Andy spends so much time in Southeast Asia and why he's returning very soon. Uh, some tips for mental health on a budget. That was kind of one of our common criticisms we think people might have for Andy is like, well, you know, it's easy to do all these crazy therapies when you're the president of all these companies when you worked at Facebook in the first five years and blah, 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 blah. So like, what do you do if you're not in that position? Uh, that was a big question that we got to address. Uh, we discussed the story that got him all feisty before the conversation and how his mental health journey shaped his reaction to that situation he was in just a few days before recording this. We discussed social media and mental health from, I know every podcast discusses social media and mental health, but Andy was on the early teams at Twitter and Facebook. He helped contribute to some of the decisions that led to the products being what they are. So it's really cool to hear his perspective from the perspective of someone who was there at the very beginning. And finally, I say finally, but it's like the first topic is what Andy learns from MMA professionals. Obviously much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation. That's enough for me. I'm gonna switch to it now. This episode is brought to you by our friends at VASA, the virtual assistant staffing agency. We hired our first virtual assistants from VASA to assist with our operations running the show back in June. But VASA is not just for podcast editors. If you need some extra hands to free up your time, let VASA help you with hiring for administrative, technical, and creative work. That's graphic design, cold callers, social media managers, sales reps, video editors, admin assistants, and more. Free up your time to focus on your highest impact work and learn more about VASA at vastaffing.agency or by clicking the link in the show notes to schedule a free strategy session with their team. Alrighty, back to the show. Andy, welcome back to the probably the fastest return for round two episode, <laughs> uh, which I think is awesome. And uh, I'm excited to be chatting today again yeah. after yeah, not a lot of time. Yeah, me so. too. Me too. I'm excited to do this because just to give a shout out to you guys, I, I just think you ask very interesting questions and it's amazing how much how far that goes is like it's it's not about what is said it's about what is asked and then great questions lead to great conversations so i'm excited for this one looking forward to seeing what what questions you throw my way awesome and for people who uh haven't 
heard the specific questions. This will be like three to four episodes ago. It'll be called Andy Johns, and it won't say part two. That'll be the difference between the titles. <laughs> uh, I think we're going to, I don't know, in terms of the, the, the vocabulary here, I don't think this conversation is going to like build on that per se, but obviously that one's helpful. So I don't think you need to like stop and listen to that before you come back here, but you might enjoy that. So no specific direction. You do you. But first question for you, you had mentioned that you're a little feisty today uh, for whatever reason. And that's funny because the question I wanted to ask you first was about, I don't know if it's an obsession, but it's definitely like an interest, a fascination, uh, an admiration for a specific UFC fighter because of their battle cry. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Let's get into that a little bit. Where did you? Where, when did you find him and then how did it resonate? And now like, why do you like rewatch that video every morning at 5 a.m. to get pumped up or it's just like a nice <laughs> nugget that's part of your life now that you're you're glad to have seen it once it's my favorite part of youtube uh so there's <laughs> there's a fighter uh, by the name of yuri prohaska uh i believe he's ukrainian um and he recently became was it the welterweight world champion or the light heavyweight world champ in the ufc and uh he's he's one of the accounts on twitter that i follow uh, but the, the reason I love this guy is he is one of the best examples I've seen alive today of the process of individuation and self-actualization, just to use the language of, you know, Abraham Maslow or, uh, um, Carl Jung and, and folks of, of sort of the more kind of modern Western philosophies on how to find meaning in life and how to obtain uh, meaning that leads to fulfillment. And so uh, Yuri, he's, he's this <laughs> big, imposing physical specimen. So he, he's just, he was born to be a warrior physically, uh, but he's actually absolutely transformed himself into one through the lifestyle that he's adopted. As he would tell it, and he grew up as kind of a tough kid on the streets and was in, involved in a lot of street fights. And there was a point where he was given the opportunity to make a choice to go down a different path. And he made that choice kind of in the similar way that Mike Tyson did to take up martial arts. And it was martial arts that, that introduced him to a different way of living. And that included discipline and the exposure to the philosophical angle of martial arts and a connection to the other people that were chaining in the gym. And so he just adopted this new way of life and he went all in on it. And he found his particular approach, which has basically turned him into a modern day samurai. And so you have this, uh, this, yeah, my favorite part after he won the UFC uh, world title is in the pro, uh, post-fight press conference, he was wearing uh, a custom-made kimono. <laughs> and so there's this huge 230-pound Ukrainian guy wearing a kimono who's got his head stitched, clothes, and everything. And but, but like he has fully adopted sort of the way of the samurai and the way he lives, the way he trains, and the investment that he makes into his mind and you can tell that no matter what shit talk his opponents throw at him what insults whatever they say it just glances right off of him and uh anyhow i i just find him truly impressive and there's this video the video that you're referencing is of yuri in the mountains 
training because he spends part of his time sort of training in isolation up in the mountains. And uh, one of the things that, that he posted was this video of him after sort of a training session letting out this war cry. And it's just one of the most raw, animalistic demonstrations of somebody feeling totally alive. And he, he gets that because he has trained his mind and body and sort of aligned everything into a path that has now made him uh, one of the best fighters in the world and a bit of a national hero. And it, it could have happened to a nicer, kinder, more dangerous, but controlled person. So that's, that's Yuri Prohaska. I have a huge man crush on him, as you can tell. And uh, I was extremely happy when one day he liked one of my tweets about him on Twitter. <laughs> have you studied uh, Hicks and Gracie's story at all? A little bit, not too much. I'm aware of, and I saw some of the old footage of when he, uh, when he won uh, the world title, I believe, and he did it with a broken arm right? You'll have to fill in the details, but I think it was Hicks and Gracie who I think he'd broken an arm in a prior match, which he won, but he went into the title match with a broken arm and managed to beat one of the other world's greatest black belts while doing it. Yeah. I don't know if I know that specific part of the story or not, but specifically a lot of the parallels that I find interesting are just like the, again, a, a non-Japanese person very much embracing the samurai mentality and mindset and training like in isolation in the mountains and becoming the greatest. So he's very, a lot of parallels. And then uh, there's this part of his book about like the animalistic instinct where he trained with, I guess someone who would have um, struggling to come up with the name of who the, the modern day version is, but someone who's like very focused, uh, Ito Elon, right? The motion guy, the animal movement guy, <laughs> some like Brazilian modern uh, 20 years ago, person who taught similar things. He tells a story of training with a person like that. And then, he like caught into this flow and just like was moving for two hours and blacked out. And the instructor was like yelling at him to like get off the walls. And he was just jumping around like a monkey for like two hours, just unresponsive because he just like <laughs> literally like lost consciousness and just became like a climbing creature. I know there's a lot of parallels in that story. And I think you might find that re like really interesting to read about like yet another example. So I don't know. I don't want to like call it a blueprint, but like a, a set of beliefs people adopted that led to really, you know, remarkable outcomes in terms of, domain specific achievements, which, but then of course, like also balanced life and good mindset and everything is, that comes involved with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I fully believe in and aspire to the benefit of it, just the general idea of being a peaceful warrior. Now, you, you don't want to have to be violent. You, you just don't want to at all. And there's so many people in the world that just allow uh, the emotional response in them to take over and that can lead to violence and just completely unnecessary situations. And so instead of being highly emotional and in a, unable to control one's violent tendencies or, or actions, you know, you, you want to be deeply peaceful, but completely in control of that, that warrior side of you that can be dangerous, that can be lethal. And that's the ideal combination is, is to be dangerous, but to be at peace at the same time. And, uh, yeah, that, that requires complete dedication, mind and body to, uh, 
to a lifestyle that can enable that sort of outcome. I, I'm nowhere close to that. In terms of sort of Yuri Prohaska levels of alignment and becoming dangerous, but peaceful, uh, but it is absolutely something I aspire to. And, you know, I had an incident yesterday, just to get back to your first question and why I mentioned I'm feeling a little feisty today, where uh, there's a trail behind my house and it's about seven miles as a out and back trail. And it's part of a protected area of land like uh, most public parks are, you know, this one is built around a, an old ancient riverbed that's meant to preserve that land. And um, I went out for a walk. I was like, you know, I want to get a seven mile walk in. I spend about two hours and I usually listen to something that uh, is sort of philosophical in nature, uh, something that allows me to kind of think and be a bit meditative while I'm walking. And so I'm doing that. And then I start to run up behind two women uh, on this trail. I was just slowly catching up to them. And then I'm about 10 yards behind them. And then one of them just, just drops her plastic, empty plastic water bottle on the trail, leaves it there. <laughs> and so I immediately think like, that, you know, that's not okay. <laughs> it may seem minor to most folks, but it speaks volumes to somebody's complete lack of respect for the environment and for the, the, the place in which we live. Like we all want to live in clean, safe, healthy environments. And it requires a certain level of, of, uh, awareness and not just being a complete asshole. Right? And so anyhow, the first bottle drops, I don't make anything of it. I pick the plastic bottle up. I keep walking. Like if they're going to drop it, I'll pick it up. You know, I'll do my part to balance the cosmic the scales and the, the mother. So it was probably a 45 year old woman and about a 25 year old daughter sees me pick it up, makes eye contact with me and drops her water bottle on the trail. Uh, basically to rub it in my face. And so I picked that water bottle up and I'm like, I'm not going to lose this. <laughs> this is. I know what right and wrong is, and that is wrong. And uh, I, I, I believe in civic responsibility a lot because that's the only scalable approach to maintaining some sense of harmony within culture. There's only so much that law enforcement can do, and there's only so much that law enforcement should do. And I think this is where the layer of culture matters, is culture is a scalable system where norms and standards and behaviors are adopted that can attempt to regulate a large population of people. And I take that seriously. And we see a lot of examples today in, 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 in the public and in the press around a lot of people in our country showing complete disdain for, for their neighbors and for their environment. And it's in these small ways that it all adds up. And so anyhow, after the second one is dropped intentionally and disdainfully with complete disregard for anyone else that was using the trail and for disregard for the environment, I picked it up. She was, the mother was looking at me and I said, ma'am, why are you dropping your water bottles? That was my respectful attempt to say, be an adult, pick up your trash. There are trash bins, just throw it in the trash. 
And the immediate response I got was, because I can do whatever the fuck I want to do. Fuck you, white boy. And I did not maintain my cool, <laughs> especially when the subject of race was introduced. I definitely said, okay, I get it. Yeah, I, go fuck yourself then, if that's how you're going to be. Like, I, no mercy. I'm sorry. But I take what I refer to as the Gandalf approach, like in the first Lord of the Rings, where he says, thou shall not pass. When it comes to th certain things like that around morals and ethics and basic civic responsibility, my answer is no, I'm not going to tolerate it. I refuse to on principle. And the response I got was then a long 10 minute tirade of homophobic slurs of racial slurs. I was called a Trumper. I was, I was called a, a bunch of other things I won't repeat because it's truly awful stuff, just uh, sickening. And so I said, okay, well, like these are modern times, who knows what the hell these people are going to do the way they're reacting. I might as well get a little bit of evidence to protect myself in the event that things go sideways. So I pull up my phone, start shooting video. They get quiet. And I said, oh, all of a sudden we're quiet now. Like if you want to continue with these racist, homophobic remarks, go right ahead. Like, <laughs> don't be shy now. And then that's when the daughter came at me and swung at me, uh, tried to punch me. Uh, I parried it away. And I responded like, no, nah, that's not going to happen. If you bring violence to me, I'm going to defend myself and it's not going to be pretty. Man or woman, I don't care. I believe in everyone's ability to protect themselves. And if somebody wants to be violent towards another person because they point out that they should pick up their fucking trash in a park, thou shall not pass. That's my take. And frankly, I think we could use a hell of a lot more of that in our current climate because I think there's a lot of folks that are pretty upset with how people are acting from a cultural perspective. And, and then when somebody points out when someone is doing something wrong and then quickly brings it down to the level of racism and making accusations, completely unfounded accusations of racism on something like that, that is low as low gets. And I just won't stand for it. So I recorded it. I have couple minutes worth of them just throwing the most disgusting things, uh, them mocking me for picking up trash. And then towards the end of the park, they walked off like the cowards they were after threatening to call their families to come and beat me up and beat up my family and <laughs> just all, all sorts of ridiculous stuff. And I, I said, well, go fuck yourself. And not welcome here if this is how you're going to treat the environment and this is how you're going to treat this place in which other people live. That's unacceptable. And it's just a perfect example of the complete lack of accountability. And so I know that there are folks that are going to say, Andy, don't get tangled up in things like that. And I would prefer not to. But when it gets thrown in my face like that, thou shall not pass. And um, so that's what, <laughs> that's what happened yesterday. I was very angry. I'm still angry. But then after I thought about it for a while, I said, you know what? Like, I will not let people like that win. And so I hopped on Amazon 
And for 20 bucks, I bought one of those trash claws, <laughs> you know, where you, you can pick trash up off the floor. And I have a couple large trash bags. And my plan over the next couple of days is I'm going to walk that seven mile stretch and I'm going to pick up every last damn piece of trash that's there because that's the right thing to do. And so I guess the moral of the story for me there was one, I have more work to do in terms of controlling my own anger because I definitely told them to go fuck themselves. And it did nothing but upset me. It didn't de-escalate the situation whatsoever. But the second point of it is tend your garden. And that's what I'm going to do. And I think in our own small ways, if hundreds of millions of people, billions of people adopt that approach, how much better our lives could be. So yeah, that was yesterday. That was my experience. Unfortunately, not the ex first experience I've had with that sort of ignorant, baseless approach to racism and throwing that around lazily. But, you know, it seems to be the what, environment right um, now. What tactics or or things came to mind in the time after the uh, event did you, like, rely on to come back to, you know, a place of, of I guess, in quotes, peace uh, to where you got on Amazon, bought that thing, and, and became determined to do something? <laughs> and, like, how... I guess, how is that influenced by the journey that you've been on uh, for the last, you know, because you, you don't really get a, a, an opportunity to, to practice uh, like in the really hard moments. And so it's yeah. interesting to catch you, you know, a day after something so crazy happened. I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, I mean, for, for the next hour, I was fired up and sort of in an animalistic sense because I had somebody come at me and swing at me and then say, I'm going to punch you in the face. And there was a part of me that was like, okay, I slipped your first jab. You're not going to touch me. And if you come at me again, I'm going to pop you in the mouth. Like, it, you know, animalistic defense tendencies that just kick in. And, and so that was circulating through my system. My heart was pounding. I was shaking. I was, I, I had that energy I needed to expend. But the first thing I did was separate myself from the situation. I created distance from them. I called the police and just gave them a heads up because I said, hey, a couple people are threatening. They're calling their husbands and their brothers and their dogs and everyone else saying that they're coming to the park to come and stomp me out. And so I needed to create safety. I created that safety in that space. And then I said, well, I'm going to complete my walk. <laughs> and so after about 30 minutes of me trying to just cool down in the shade, I turned around and I walked my three and a half miles home. And that's when I was like, I need to take this opportunity to think. I called my brother. I spoke with him. I needed to just vent and air it out a little bit. And then uh, about an hour, hour and a half later, I got back home. And I, I think there was just a point where I said, like, obviously, Andy, I can't just get pissed and hold this anger. You know, it's like the Buddhist saying of it's like trying to throw coal at somebody. You only end up like you're the person who's holding the coal while you're chasing after someone looking to throw it at them. Like you're the one who gets hurt holding on to that anger. And so the other thing I did is that, well, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to process this physically. I'm going to burn off this energy. And it was just through the process of saying, Andy, like just keep moving, keep doing something positive, go exercise, work through this. Don't sit with it. Like I even came home and I put on some videos from an animal sanctuary that I love to watch. 
because I just wanted that energy of like animals being loved to kind of wash over me. And it was in that environment where I said, you know what? Screw them. Hey, you will not win <laughs> in this ongoing battle of good versus evil. Like you will not win. What is the right thing to do? And the right thing to do is, okay, I'm getting a trash claw. And like, if they wanted to mock me, which they did for a good five minutes, pointing out every little piece of trash and then calling me this and calling me that and homophobic slur here and racist slur there and, you know, egging me on and begging me to pick up trash. Well, that's what I'm going to do. And I hope the next time they're out there, they see how perfectly clean that place is. You know, <laughs> so I just arrived there through a process of giving it time and just reminding myself that Andy work through this. Don't hold it. Don't sit, don't let it fester. And, uh, I didn't have the exact right answer. I just knew like mood follows action. So what I do determines how I feel. So let me go do something that's positive. That is, uh, I'm just sitting with the, the reaction here, but that's, that's a, that's a whole thing to happen. I have like all these questions about the logistics and like, you know, <laughs> so I, I think of my psychology, right? I, Kyle knows I'm very prone to like give people the benefit of the doubt. And like, that's kind of like one of my, I know, I don't call it like a character flaw. Just I'm people are one way or the other on that spectrum in terms of like what they assume about the other people. And I t I'm like, well, you know, you said it was an out and back trail. So like, you know, one of my neighbors, like if, when they take our trail, they'll like set their dog poop bags down. So like, they'll pick up the poop, they'll put it in a bag. Like, I'm not going to carry poop with me for 40 minutes. <laughs> so they set it down, they go, they go to the end of the trail and then they collect it all on the way back. Mm -hmm. Like maybe just maybe <laughs> they were, <laughs> They're, well, you know, leaving some breadcrumbs to find their way home, but unfortunately they were on the way I, back at that point. So okay. <laughs> when they dropped their stuff, cause I, I saw them walk into the parking lot, get in their cars, flip me off and drive away. So <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I did give the benefit of the doubt, which is why I didn't say anything at first. I just picked up That's my trash. I continued walking. And then when I saw the mother saw that I picked it up. And then make eye contact yeah. with me and throw it on the floor. And not say, face. oh, I was getting that on my way back. You know, that would, yeah. Cause that's what my neighbor yeah. would have said about the dog poop. She's like, oh, I do this every day. <laughs> if you've lived here a while, you know, I'm the, the lady who does this with her dog poop. I have this routine. Mm -hmm. And you've been like, oh, that's, yep. a, that's a, that's a digestible story. She's probably going to pick it up in a little bit. Then but I gave one more energy. opportunity and I said, ma'am, why are you dropping your bottles on the, on the trail? Yeah. That was going to say too, yeah. that's like. I think that was the right question, right? That was like a perfectly neutral question. I don't know. Obviously, I don't know your tone of how you asked it in the time taking it was it's a, a second like hand that. here, but <laughs> that's, that's the right question. Like, why did, what was your reasoning? That's a fair question. <sighs> if you see someone doing something peculiar, like, why are you doing this peculiar thing? Yeah. Yeah. But I, I definitely like people should pick their battles. That was just one battle that just literally was put in front of me that day. And I said, well, not today. <laughs> So, I don't know. um, have you used martial arts as a, as a part of your mental health journey? I have in the past, but not, I realize now that it was in an elementary way or in a beginner's way where I first started training in, uh, actually at a gym in San Jose back in gosh, I want to say it was 2010, uh, called American Kickboxing Academy. It's actually a really well-known gym. It has multiple UFC champions. There's, you know, Daniel Cormier as comes out of that gym. He trains at that gym. 
Khabib, Nurmagomedov, you know, the, I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> the Wolf, like there's Luke Rockhold, who I think just fought the other night. Like there are multiple, uh, Cain Velasquez, former heavyweight world champion. Like, it is a murderer's row of elite level fighters. And I just went in as a dude off the street because basically I had a buddy in tech who one night when he's walking in San Francisco, somebody came up behind him, popped him in the head, just hit him, took his laptop and ran off. And so my buddy said, you know what? I, I vowed to never allow that to happen to myself again. And so he, he searched for, you know, he's like, let me get in shape. Let me be able to at least protect myself. I'm not trying to go out and start fights, but like, I don't want to just get punched and robbed and have no ability to even just, you know, basic defense and get away. And so he started training at this gym and then he said, Hey dude, I think you'd really like it. So sure. I'll go check it out. I was training ultra marathons at the time. And so I was in really good shape, but I was getting towards the end of my ultra, uh, ultra marathon career. Cause I could just, my knees and hips and everything. I was like, this isn't good long-term. And, uh, so I went in there and started training and, uh, I picked up the Muay Thai side, which is Thai style kickboxing, uh, very quickly. And I, I really got into it, enjoyed it, did some freestyle wrestling, a little bit of jujitsu, but it was mostly boxing and Thai kickboxing. And at one point in 2013, I actually went and trained in Thailand at a gym called Tiger Muay Thai, which is one of the elite Thai kick kickboxing gyms in, in all of Thailand. And, uh, the reason why I say I used it from an elementary perspective is at the time I was really battling with a lot of panic attacks. I was in constant panic day to day. This is early in my mental health journey. I had started seeing a therapist. I was aware at that point that the bodily sensations and the psychiatric experiences I was having were consistent with post-traumatic stress. You know, I had a PTSD diagnosis and the panic attacks I was having was a side effect of that. And so I, I picked up for the same reason I picked up ultra marathons was like the best way I'd figured out to work through that really awful nervous energy and the feeling, the constant feeling of fight or flight was I was going to fight. And for me, fight meant just go work it off physically. And, uh, what I used to do with running was run my 40, 50, 60 miles a week. And that would help me. That was my meditation and my therapy all in one. And it really did the trick. Uh, the problem was the body couldn't really do that forever. And so I needed to find ways to calm my mind elsewhere. Uh, otherwise, but I, when I got into the training, that's where it was my place to sort of take anger and, and anxiety out on the bag. And then at the conclusion of a one or two hour, really hard training session, I was just spent physically. And then I could feel the flight or fight systems were shutting down. And, and so I, I predominantly used it for that. I, I love the sport. It's something that I grew up watching since UFC number one. And it was something I always really admired. Uh, and then when I got into some of the training, albeit as a, as a total amateur, uh, it was fantastic. And that's what I used it for. I think that after I have some surgery on my knee uh, a little later this year and I recover from that, I would love to get back into it for the purpose of physical wellness, but also to make 
a deeper investment into the spiritual and psychological aspect of it that I did not appreciate nearly as much as I will now. And to, to use it as a method for learning how to control the mind and to control our behaviors. That's what I would like to experience with it now. Be excited to uh, check big, check back in on uh, on Andy the the samurai and however many years it takes. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I I, I want to be peaceful yet dangerous. Uh, yeah, the, uh, I've be. not gone as deep into the martial arts as I have liked. I started last fall, and I'd like to pick it back up when I kind of have more of a routine again. But what's interesting is my and this is like one company that you didn't really manage to touch as far as I know on your journey. But the instructor who I had started with in jujitsu, he was actually the onsite instructor for like Google. They like had like a, you know, there's however many people that go in every day on that facility. And he was the onsite Google, uh, jujitsu instructor at like the Google headquarters. And he was like, during COVID, he's like, California is more difficult to operate a gym in than other States. And I'm going to, I'm going to mm-hmm. move to Tennessee, but that's his backstory. It's kind of an interesting like tech intersection. Very cool. I didn't know that Google was providing that. I mean, what don't they provide? That's, that's yeah. incredible. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I would like to say for the fact checkers listening that I think that's the story. He might have just been next to Google and I might have only been there, but he was very disappointed when I told him I was a software engineer. He's like, oh, my last job, everyone was just, he's like, I want to meet, I want to have students who aren't software engineers. <laughs> yeah. Fewer people with soft hands. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> Exactly. Uh, one theme in some of your recent writing and kind of like, a, I mean, it's one of those things you can relate to anything, but you bring up this concept of the tuning fork, kind of how you're attributed, you know, you have less autonomy than you think you do, unless you have like extreme mindfulness, let's say. Uh, it's just no matter what you're always, it's kind of like the, what you're saying about fighting the battle versus your anxiety, right? It's like you kind of, for years, your strategy was, well, if I just exhaust myself on the heavy bag for two hours, then there's nothing to deal with because I exhausted it, right? And so that's kind of the same thing with, with your environment. It's like you could choose to fight. If you're in an environment that doesn't support like the direction you want to go, you could choose to build some habit that helps you fight it every day. So you meditate for 20 minutes at the start of your day, 20 minutes at the halfway point in your day that keeps your mental awareness unnecessarily high. And you can kind of just be mindful of your environment or you could just like be in a better place. Uh, so what is kind of your thesis on the tuning fork and what are some of like the places you've been that have helped you cultivate good vibes. Yeah. I love this question. It's one of my favorite things for me to contemplate right now. You know, with the tuning fork analogy, the idea is our body is basically one large sensory system that is meant to detect and understand and interpret the environment around it. If it's too hot, the body activates certain systems to cool off. We sweat, right? And depending on what somebody aspires for themselves, then they should be willing to place them, their body as a tuning fork in the environment that is most nurturing for that desired outcome. And there are very sort of simple examples. Uh, one would be that, you know, if somebody wants to make an investment into their mind and expand their knowledge, well then, They'll put themselves into the environment of the highest quality, uh, academic institution that they can, right? Surround themselves with that, that, uh, environment of knowledge. 
if somebody doesn't want to be really stressed out by their environment anymore because of traffic and parking and da 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 da. It was one of the major reasons why I decided to move away from the Silicon Valley was it, it had become very clear to me all the ways in which my environment was making it very difficult for me to be healthy, happy, and sane. Um, at one point, it was a wonderful place for that. But eventually for me, it was no longer a nurturing environment. And so I chose to, to leave. And where that brings me now is... And it's part of why I'm starting to split my time between uh, Central California and various parts of Southeast Asia is when I'm in Central California, it's a simple, grounded, down-to-earth environment where you can find the everyday person and connect with the everyday person and also for me to connect with my family. And so it, it for me, this is a place where my tuning fork can resonate with the roots uh, in which I, were, I was born and to connect with that energy of family. And other parts of Southeast Asia is where I spend more and more of my time because it has the elements that I now find really important for what I want in my life at this stage. What I want in my life at this stage is balance peace, calm, and happiness. And in my search of having traveled to quite a few places and put my tuning fork in those different environments and then observed how my tuning fork responded to it, for me, what I found is that Southeast Asia is where it, it best resonates on the dimensions of easy daily access to really high quality, delicious, healthy food. So I want to feed my mind and body with the best stuff I can and for it to not break, break the bank and for me to not have to go, you know, way out of my way through, you know, the suburban sprawl of Fresno to find a simple healthy food option amongst all the fast food. It's a, especially the, the, the northern part of Thailand, which is where I'll be at next, where there's deep spiritual roots and a connection to sort of the history of the culture there. There's a connection to a connection to nature and the natural environment and a place that is warm, welcoming, and generally full of good natured, positive, happy, inviting people. Because at this point in my life, I have met my most fundamental needs to sort of think of it in the Maslow's hierarchy. I've met my needs of food, shelter, safety. And I was able to do that. I can do so reliably because I had a successful career and I intelligently saved and invested money. And so from a financial perspective, I'm able to provide for those bare essentials. And now that those have been well taken care of, the higher order needs of love, of esteem, and of self-actualization and becoming the best version of ourselves, whatever that may be. Those are the things that are front and center in my psyche and tend to be pulling at me from within as if they're begging me to satisfy those because the longer that I do not satisfy my real needs for love and connection and for carving out my own path, the more I feel 
anxiety and depression building in me because I'm pushing that those needs down. And, and so I'm pursuing a place in the world that I think will be conducive in that tuning fork analogy to me, finding those next order needs that I have of love connection and, uh, esteem and self-actualization. Um, and so, you know, in seven days time, actually, I'll be boarding my flight to Chiang Mai. And for the first two weeks of it, I'm actually going to be working at an animal sanctuary, uh, basically just doing manual labor as a hired hand. And so I just want to be up in the mountains. I want to be around animals that have been abused and that are going through the process of natural rehabilitation in the context of a, of a herd allowing other animals to help heal them. And I want to be around kind, thoughtful, peaceful people, especially after the incident I just had on the trail outside my house. So that's, uh, that's what's next for me. And, uh, that's why I spend more and more of my time with my tuning fork in other environments. So I guess that's the takeaway I give folks is try and develop that consciousness or the awareness around what are the, the deeper needs of the higher order needs that, that aren't being met and how is your environment influencing that? And then you have to be willing to meticulously invest in constructing an environment that sets you up to obtain those higher order needs. Yeah. I think from a implementation perspective, that's often because you're, you know, you're using words like meticulous and really intentional. And I think that makes people think it's complicated. But it's kind of like what we asked last time about, like, you know, what do you know when something's true, right? It's like, well, then it's just once you accept the truth, it's just easy. It's like once you know that you need to do it, you just go. It's like going to a new place, you just go. Right? There's like details and stuff. But there's so many stories. I'm a big fan of the author, MJ DeMarco. I don't know if you've read any of his books, mm -hmm. but like good entrepreneurship books. And, you know, he tells the story of basically living in Chicago for like his entire life and trying to start businesses after he graduated for like seven years and just never having any success. And then just like moved to Phoenix, Arizona and it just like was sunny and he like immediately cured his depression and he would like, didn't have like the influences of like previous identity. Like that's a big part of it, of like the difficulty of staying in one environment is you have to, it's a lot more difficult to make those identity changes because there's like mm -hmm. expectations to maintain it. So that is like extremely, extremely key in some environments. People don't realize how just, and like the details within the environment as well. Cause I was going to ask you like how to the extent to which you try to live as a local versus a tourist, right. In like a place like Southeast Asia. And that makes a huge difference. Just how you structure your days and again, things like traffic and, and those considerations. So I think that is like one of the, as far as easiest in terms of like bang for your buck, like there's a lot of logistical work involved in like changing location, but in terms of just like, if you complete that task, you get so much bang for your buck versus trying to, break so many old habits at once. It's just like, yeah. or you could just break all the habits if you just go somewhere <laughs> without those habits. Exactly. And it's, it's an, it's a practice in establishing neuroplasticity too. You know, if you, if you put yourself in the exact same environment in which the brain has sort of been conditioned to these very subtle cues in that environment and a certain set of patterns have been established within the cues within that environment. If you hope to create fundamental change in how you think, act, and feel, but you keep yourself in that exact environment, that's really tough. There's a reason why uh, spiritual seekers will move from you know, Berkeley to Bangladesh and put themselves in an ashram. 
uh, there's a reason why monks also meticulously cultivate their environment, every little detail of the place in which they practice their form of worship. It's all set up in alignment with that. And so the hardest part about it is getting over the fear. You know, practically speaking, things aren't as difficult as they seem on the surface, right? It really comes down to like, I made this choice and I understand that I might have to make some sacrifices, but the hardest part of me making this happen is not going to be booking the ticket or working an extra 10 hours a week to save the money. The hardest part is actually me conquering my fear of changing. But if I decide to get over that and I place myself in a brand new environment, then I'm requiring that my brain flexes. I'm requiring that it adapts and becomes used to new stimuli. And so it's, it's a, a really, really fucking hard thing to do. I'm not going to discount that at all. But from what I've experienced and what I've observed in my own life and in the lives of others is it is fundamental to people making sweeping changes to how they think, act and feel. I completely agree. Kyle, jump in. Yeah, I agree as well. So one question that I've been uh, thinking and, and wanting to ask you about is like, I think when I think about mental health, especially among my generation, the negative aspects of it come from immediately I think about social media and I think most people do uh, social media from all different perspectives, whether it's Facebook from five years ago or TikTok today, like it's just, it's bad for people. And I wanted to know, you know, you had a, a pretty large role in growing social media from nothing to something. And, um, how do you conceptualize that as somebody who's so focused on, on mental health now? Do you feel, what do you, what do you feel about that? Yeah. So my first reaction to that is I'm really glad I stepped away from working on social media when I did, uh, which was 2013. At the time it was exciting though. And I worked around a lot of people that when we built the product, say Facebook, we were genuinely just curious and interested in getting people all around the world to connect on a platform. And there were all sorts of really wonderful behaviors that we saw arising out of the product at the time. For example, there was a huge uh, sort of civil disobedience protest that was grassroots that rose up in, I believe is Columbia at the time, an organization called Nomos FARC, F-A-R-C, uh, F-A-R-C, which this was a grassroots uprising of people that were effectively protesting in response to what they considered a, a sort of a militarized dictatorship of the people. And there's all sorts of good that still takes place on the platform today along those lines. But I would say we would have to be foolish to ignore the obvious that at this point, the newsfeed has absolutely been optimized for attention <laughs> uh, because attention is what facilitates the business model. And the more attention, the more money they make. 
Um, and I think it had some really unexpected side effects or consequences and that there are absolutely people with massive egos involved in those companies that like to believe that they knew what was right and everyone else didn't. And there's some of them that still stand to those <laughs> arguments today. And for me, it's just indicative of the, the bubble type thinking that people in the tech industry, especially in the Silicon Valley are prone to just because they have a, a master's in computer science from MIT doesn't mean they're not susceptible to delusion, right? Everyone can have an ego. And some people that have lots of degrees and high pedigrees have the biggest damn egos that are out there and they will convince themselves that they know what is right. And I think it's just foolish to believe that for something so complex as orchestrating all of humanity and this massive amount of new content and information that's constantly being shared. And to think that amongst that complexity, complexity, you know, what is right. It's foolish. It's ego at its finest. Now they're entitled to do what they want with their private business or with their public business. And I've actually been in conversations with some folks that have been creators of these products, these large social networks. And during the era in which there was, you know, sort of the removal of Trump and other accounts and a very clear approach to censoring certain forms of speech, the common response I got was, well, we can, we're a, we're a, you know, as a company, we're endowed with the right to make these decisions with our platform. And I said, yeah, but that's the wrong question. It's not, can you, it's should you. <laughs> and if you do, what are the implications of that? Uh, and so the thing that I observe day to day, and people could argue that this is a silly argument. It's a reductionist anecdotal point of point of view. But I just pay attention. I use my own damn eyes and I go into the gym and I sit in the sauna and there's usually 15 people in the sauna and 13 of them have their face plastered into the phone. And we all see this day to day, people's inability to actually lift their heads up and engage with the world around them. And then at the same time, they're being fed full, like spoonfuls of fast food knowledge. And just like you know, nearly 50% of us are obese or overweight today. Well, at least 50% of us have a brain that's chock full of nonsense. And their tuning fork is resonating with the crap that they experience here. And so I, my opinion or perspective isn't that these companies are evil or that the people that work at them are evil is is the fox evil for attacking and killing a squirrel no <laughs> it's not it just is what it is these aren't evil people it's definitely ego but that's different from evil there wasn't an intention around creating these negative side effects and uh My relation to these products today as an individual is the bare minimum. 
I very, very reluctantly have Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, one of the reasons I only follow four accounts on Twitter is because I just don't want to stare at it. All the mindless half thought ideas that are shared around and how people attack each other on there all the time. Like it's just kind of a vile place. It's not where you find truth. It's where you find the opposite of it. <laughs> and, and so I have the bare minimum of personal usage. I basically get on there from time to time and share an article or share a thought. And then I try and get the hell out. And personally, I think one of the easiest and most straightforward ways to minimize the impact of algorithmic news feeds is to get rid of the news feed. <laughs> right? Like Facebook kind of understands this. It's got Facebook messenger. It's got WhatsApp. You know, these are social networks in the absence of a news feed. That's the difference. Yeah. That's, it's one of the reasons snap has avoided so much of this controversy is that fundamentally at the core of it, it's a person to person messaging app. And, and so I think that it looks like the market is naturally moving this way with more and more private social networks, the, the sort of discords of the world and moving away from large public open news feeds, which are just these, you know, it's these fire hoses of fast food information. I look forward to the day in which hopefully people aren't glued to them six hours a day because I just see all sorts of perverse ways in which it's just shaping the minds of young people. And I think at a, at a, at a more philosophical level, what I'd say, Kyle, is that peace and liberation comes from the relentless pursuit of truth, beginning with what is true of oneself. For example, I used to work so hard and just like physically and psychologically break myself by putting in as much effort as I could, because deep down, I had a very low opinion of myself. All I wanted was love and to be heard. And I didn't get enough of that when I was little because of the, my mom's illness and when she passed when I was 10. and. And then combined with the societal messages I had around me, that's what contributed to me just becoming this relentless high performer. I just wanted to achieve to sort of prove that I was worthy and lovable. But when I woke up from that, when I did the deep inner engineering, when I did the 12 years of therapy, when I went into a tier one psychiatric hospital, when I, I did my mushrooms, I did my ayahuasca, I, I became Moby Dick after the white whale in pursuit of saying, I don't want to suffer anymore. I'm tired of the suffering that's happening in my head and I must figure it out. And eventually when I figured out that truth of like, Andy, you're good enough and you're lovable as you are. You don't have to prove this to anyone in order to receive this love. And when I really felt that, as opposed to just intellectually understanding it. Like when I really felt like, yeah, I am good enough. I don't need to do this anymore. 
that's when I decided to step away from the really difficult, stressful work that I was doing because I realized it just wasn't kind to myself. It wasn't what I needed to do anymore. And the right thing to do would be to move in the direction of something that is more loving to me, which is sort of the lifestyle that I'm designing for myself now, which is like try and do the bare minimum of work to pay the bills. And then the rest of the time, just try and enjoy myself and take care of myself and connect and love others. And, and so the reason I say this is the answer towards the peace and the freedom we seek is a relentless pursuit of asking what is true for me. And then chasing that white whale until you find it. And when I see people burying their face into social media for six hours a day or CNN or Fox news or whatever the hell it may be, which I definitely fall into those traps myself. So I'm not a perfect person. YouTube's got me by, <laughs> by the horns right now, uh, especially on elephant sanctuary videos, but <laughs> the, the, when I see people doing that, they are actively engaging in the act of avoiding truth. And they are instead absorbing highly manufactured contextless information fed to them by a system that knows that, Hey, if I show this to this person, it'll probably get their attention for a bit. And it is one massive distraction from what is true and what is real. And if you really think about it, the news cycle that you see on TV is effectively entirely propagated based on edge case scenarios. They find examples that affect 1% of the population. They turn it into a big story, ripe with emotion, and paint the picture out to be as if this is the case that affects everyone. And we buy it hook, line, and sinker over and over and over again. So that's what I mean. It is not exposure to direct truth. It is exposure to direct, to direct falseness. And that leads people. It is inherently evil then. <laughs> it leads people further away. That's what, there's a fair argument to be made there. But like, you know, if you think about it, to talk about, say, the metaverse, for example, is like, I think of it as a metaverse on top of a metaverse. Like, what is Facebook's metaverse? It's this sort of artificial environment where there are certain laws and constraints that are introduced to the environment. But otherwise, within those laws and constraints, whatever you can imagine, you can create and you can experience. And that's sort of the direction that it goes in. And then, you know, in, in some sort of future scenario, it's, it's like Ready Player, uh, Ready Player One, right? Is that the, the name of the movie? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where... It's this metaphors that's so fascinating and exciting that you, you don't want to experience reality. And then you plug in and you experience a pseudo reality that actually doesn't do very much for improving the well-being of people. <laughs> right? um, and the reason I say we're, we're in a metaverse already, because like go back a million years and this world we live in didn't exist, but somehow through some, some miraculous process, we developed this like two to four millimeter wide layer around our brain that all of a sudden endowed us with this immaculate ability to think of things that aren't real, to think in the abstract and to dream. 
And we know this to be true because when we close our eyes and sleep, we dream of things that aren't real. But when we open our eyes and dream, some of us build it. And when we build it, that becomes the reality that the rest of us live in. But it's not reality. It's just the metaverse that we created with brick and mortar. Because at one point, it was just a dream. And so, like, I think this is the ultimate lesson of anyone that says, I am going to go deep into the journey of trying to discover what is true, is you'll wake up and say, there's nothing fundamentally true about this world we live in. In the same way that people plugging into the metaverse with Facebook six hours a day wouldn't be exposing themselves to fundamental truth either. They are removing themselves one layer at a time away from what is true. And uh, I guess to tie it all together, I don't see a path to that leading to the sort of liberation of the mind and a state of calm and peace that people claim they want. It, it leads them away from that. You won't find what you're looking for, no matter what it is you're looking for, you're not going to find it as, as far as assuming what you're looking for is like a worthwhile aim. You're not going to find it on, on Twitter. I don't want to like point fingers, but I like yeah. a specific platform. That's just the one that I'm, I'm projecting as, as they say <laughs> in the literature. Uh, the one that I am, you know, most, not ignorantly, but, you know, the one I'm using in the least effective way, the one that's like least, you know, beneficial in terms of time invested. Yeah, I, I think like anything else, it comes down to intention and purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, you learn this when working with psychedelic medicines, beginning with cannabis. Like cannabis can be a wonderful thing and be a mild psychedelic in and of itself. And it's not necessarily bad if somebody wants to smoke weed a couple nights a week, if there's intention around it. If they explore the use of something like cannabis and they experience that it increases creativity, it makes them enjoy music and art and reading and watching movies more or socializing, or it just makes a bite of sushi that much better. Then if you use it intentionally and you say, you know, I'm going to smoke tonight because I'm going to be with friends. And we always have great conversations when this happens. Like that, that is a, that is when something that has the potential to make you feel lethargic or to lead to Cheetos and snack food. That's when you take that exact same thing and with the right intention, it turns into a beautiful conversation with friends. And, and it comes back to environment. Yes. Cause if you, if you meal prep, <laughs> if you meal prep before you partake and all you have on hand are fr is fruit and there's no Cheetos within reaching distance <laughs> yeah, exactly. even with a grabber that's that's the double intersection yeah you don't I've have been... you don't exactly. have cnn or fox on tv and you know you like mm -hmm. yeah you you have to curate the environment that's why they talk about set and setting and the use of psychedelic medicines the mindset yeah. you're in and the setting that you curate has a huge influence that along with your intention on what the outcome is and so if somebody said to me like i love twitter because I've curated the top 12 people that I most admire. And these are people who, when I consume their information, I find myself exercising more. I find myself being more gracious. I find myself being more curious. That's wonderful. But I think the simple algorithmic newsfeed is the absence of intention. So, I would refute the point and say, like, it's not fundamentally evil in and of itself. 
a technology is a technology in the same way that nuclear nuclear technology is not fundamentally evil, but the intention and the purpose is what directs it in a particular way. Mm. Yeah, I think it's very much an ego thing to like admit user error, right? Like there's not, any, I mean, I think Twitter, all systems, right? And all technologies are somewhat biased in that they definitely guide someone. Like the, if you have a thousand people, there's like patterns that will emerge from how just people like human nature times the technology and the constraints just like happen to emerge in this way. But at the end of the day, it is user error because if you're intentional enough, you can definitely like overcome that. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's a question of, again, like responsibility and ethics. Like, you know, should you release a system that requires an exceptionally uh, self-aware person who's reached <laughs> a breaking point to use your tool in a net positive way? Like that's, that's another question that like requires an extraordinary level of reflection and discipline yeah. to like create that system in the first place. But at the end of the day, it's like you, where you are right now in the abstract are where you are with the platforms you are because of how you are. And it's up to you to like redo that. So you can, yeah. you can, you can moralize and you can also change like your day-to-day -day life in one hand and, and a little bit in the other. And to be fair to the folks working there, like having spent a significant portion of my early career working on these platforms, I can tell you just how hard and complicated it is. Like, you know, it, it's, it's like, I don't know. It's like anyone trying to orchestrate global systems of immense complexity is freaking hard. And it's impossible to predict what the outcomes are. And, and, and so my direct experience there was like, it was a bunch of curious people who are like, wow, we get to build something that everybody uses. That's crazy. And nobody really on earth, I think had the, except for maybe a, a few people had enough wisdom mm -hmm. to be able to anticipate these longer term ripple effects because it was all just happening in real time. And then the next thing, you know, Oh, holy shit, what's going on. Right. Now it's like you change the, the hue of the color blue on the thing. And it, it leads to like moral decay and Nicaragua and you just have no like connection to it. Yeah, exactly. It's like, wait, get rid of that shade of blue. <laughs> <laughs> There's a we damn need to revert. collapse. Yeah, yeah. we got to revert that A-B test. <laughs> Do you, uh, speculating, have, like, one subtle change that you would, you know, think is an experiment that could be, like, positive for just, could be, like, a constraint design on Twitter? I, I have one. I'll, I'll, I'll sure, seed, yeah, I'll yeah, yeah. one. You start. Again, and it could be uh, very much, I, I, again, you know the politics of internal politics and the difficulty of like, you know, someone's going to say, no, you can't do that because of X, Y, Z, but the, this resetting your follower count to zero, like following, not follower, I guess audience capture, right? Resetting your follower count to zero could be cool too, but that's just called creating a new account, but resetting your, I, I'm going to go to zero, follow zero people, uh, in one click. <laughs> and like, that would be amazing. Yeah. Sort of just. Wiping the, wiping the slate clean, so to speak. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I think the sort by latest was another good one they did recently. That's like, you can remove that. You can, you can bring the timeline back in the traditional sense of like, this is just literally chronological. What has happened from the people I'm following in chronological order. You can like toggle that on and off with the star icon. I think that mm -hmm. was also a really good one versus like the, the greatest hits real. I, th I think I, I think I would go like further up the stack. If I were to just touch the product itself, the one thing I would do is just get rid of news feeds 
And I'd say like, we have to force ourselves to figure out how do we enable authentic connection between people who opt in to connecting with each other. Uh, but like do so in a way where we break this relationship between attention equating to, uh, a more lucrative business model. Like it's the, at the core, the product change would need to be something that, that is directly attached to the, uh, the profit motive. Um, but when I say further up the stack, <laughs> what I would change is the makeup of the employees. Because like, this is what no, like, people kind of talk about this here and there, but there's an irony or a, a contradiction that I've noticed, which is in the world of tech, there's a concept known as shipping the org chart. And some people are aware of it, not as many folks as I would hope, but the idea is that your product becomes what your org is, right? It's a really simple idea. And, and so here, here's a basic example, like Facebook, we create a growth team in 2008. Uh, and then because we created a growth team, this new team within the org chart, the product then started to contain A-B tests in it because the growth team was doing A-B tests for the purpose of trying to figure out how to make it grow faster. So the product became a reflection of its org chart in the same way that if a startup brings in, you know, their first amazing world-class designer, you, you see that in the product, right? We saw that at, this at Wealthfront when we were finally able to bring somebody in that had like really deep design experience, all of a sudden our product just became light years better, sleeker, simpler, faster, more elegant, more delightful to the customer. And so that's the concept of shipping the org chart is your product becomes what your org is. And so that's why I say I'd go further up the stack is like, if we wanna change the product, change the org. <laughs> uh, we see this in all sorts of examples. Like we talk about how in our modern culture, there are these real questions and concerns around the quality of education that people are receiving, especially in the social sciences, and that a very strong left-leaning bent seems to be coming out of public academia. And, you know, we see this anytime somebody chooses to go on, say, Berkeley's campus and just yep. ask the students a couple of questions and try to speak. Yeah. And then they get shut down. Right. And the kids didn't necessarily go into Berkeley or what have you thinking that way. Uh, some of them, uh, sort of start to subscribe to the certain set of beliefs that are seem to be indoctrinated within that university. And it's because of the, the concept of shipping the org chart. It's like if, and you know, there've been polls on this. If, if every, I think it's 10 out of every 11 public university professors or administrators are self-declared liberal, then it shouldn't be a surprise that the, when you look at the shifting makeup of degrees that people can earn, the social sciences has ballooned relative to what used to be considered the more classic fields of study 
and the hard sciences. Um, and so you have a, a university system that can be set up with an overwhelming lean in terms of people's uh, political preferences. And because these are the people that are the educators and they're running the institution, that makes its way down into the curriculum. And then the curriculum makes its way into the students. And then we see that nonsense when the students are clearly talking about stuff that has shown very little thought. Uh, but they seem to hold those beliefs with a religious fervor. <laughs> right? They are not seekers of what is true. They're holders of what is false, and they want to weaponize that against people. And so that's why I would explore the area of uh, shipping the org chart. And generally speaking, having been inside the halls of these companies, the product that, say, Twitter has shipped is a direct reflection of its employee base. Like if if the entire trust and safety team holds one particular political perspective, I would expect that political perspective to make its way into the policies around user moderation, which they clearly have. <laughs> like, so I would change the org chart. And that's why I would be most excited with somebody like Elon coming in because it's like, good, I'm in, half of you are fired. We're going to mix shit up. And if you ever hope to see a fundamental change in the nature of the product, there must be a fundamental change in the nature of the employees. Full stop. Like that, answering the question on another layer, uh, in, in crypto speak, we'd call that like layer zero, right? That's kind of like the, <laughs> the, the, the blockchain joke. But uh, I like that a lot. One question I called Kyle today uh, to game plan our, our episode to the extent we, we game plan versus just into it. And I was like, what were the big things that we wanted to get to last time that we didn't get to last time? He's like, there were two. And I was like, thank you for remembering. So we got to one of those, which was the, you've been in social, you have this really unique perspective on social media and this resulted. And second it, that we wanted to ask about is kind of like the mental health, but on a budget question. Cause it's kind of like one of these things. I don't kind of just become the, the hypothetical critic here. It's like, you know, it's easy for you to say, right? Because you had this career and you had all the success and then you could afford this elaborate thing with the, the eyes and the ears and it's crazy. And that's not, that's not my budget right now. And I know there's a lot of like obvious kind of low hanging fruit, right? Like I think most people at any level of income could afford a gym membership or at least access to a park. Or again, once you learn how to shop effectively, you realize it's more or less the same cost to eat at a more healthy rate. Uh, but what are some of those, like, I guess, how do you approach someone who doesn't want to front load like their life in terms of like terrible mental health, but high income, and then 180 degree transition to lower <laughs> income. But I say I made a lot of money and now I'm going to do all this crazy stuff. Like how would you kind of prescribe to the extent you're interested in making prescriptions, like a kind of like budget friendly, mental health, early career type things, therapy, like traditional therapy. I'm going to air quote again, exotic treatments, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I generally, <laughs> I try and avoid prescriptions specifically because there is no one truth. Sure. And people need to find their own system that leads to their deeper sense of well wellness. But if I were to give a set of, of first principles to people, and then I said within these set of first principles, construct the lifestyle and the environment that 
according to your budget and interest works for you. The principles that I would share are that uh, first is uh, human connection. Uh, we are hardwired for a deep need for connection. And there's a lot of evidence to uh, demonstrate that for quite a few folks who exist on some spectrum of anxiety or depression and a sense of longing or unfulfillment that a portion of that comes from being disconnected with others, being lonely, isolated. So that would be principle one is have something that is an active investment in, in real close, trusting, loving, unconditional relationships with others. The second principle I would call integration, meaning that they also need to construct their lifestyle in a way where they're meaning, moving multiple things into alignment. And so if there's a disconnect in, for example, when somebody is saying, uh, you know, I just want to be healthy and I, I, I want to feel good and I want to look good. And then they eat potato chips and they never go to the gym. It's like bullshit. You are, you have not integrated that lesson into your behaviors and your practices in life. So you must integrate that. And what that usually looks like is structure and discipline. I love, uh, Jocko Willink, the former, uh, Navy SEAL commander who wrote his book called discipline equals freedom. It sounds like a paradox, but it's not discipline leads to freedom. <laughs> and it's more about that disciplined, artful construction of an integrated lifestyle, line, all the ducks up, point them in a single direction emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, and relationship wise. Uh, the third principle would be fuel. And what I mean by fuel is what fuel do you put into your body and what fuel do you put into your mind and to carefully curate those healthy food and, uh, a strong dose of high quality information that is direct, that is that is as close to direct truth as possible. And I'd say that, that the, the fourth one would be movement. Use your body for what it is intended to do. <laughs> move it in whatever way you prefer. Just move it because mood follows action, right? So, you know, I, I would start there. And within those principles, then ask somebody like, what does each one of those look like for you? Is it joining boy Scouts? Is it joining a soccer team? Is it, uh, you know, something else that's where the degrees of freedom and Liberty need to take place. But at a principle level, like when somebody doesn't have physical health, they're not fueling themselves. They're not moving their body. They're not connecting with others and experiencing and sending and receiving love. Uh, most else doesn't really matter if those, those building blocks are in place. Like if you put those pieces in place and the highest order need then comes into the picture and occupies your mind and that highest order need being something that is like a creative exploration of sorts, like finding your purposeful, purposeful work, then that's icing on top of it. But I think all that comes after those first principles.
So let's list those out one more time just for, for the audience. We had. Go for it. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so, uh, number one would be this, or this is number two, but this principle of integration. Mm-hmm. That's a, yeah, that, that, that alignment principle. Another one is fuel, the fuel that you put into your body, into your mind. Another one is love and connection. Uh, and a, another one is movement. Use the body, be active. Like it. I think that's really, really good. Yeah. You know, and like to your question, Kyle, about the mental health crises that people your age are experiencing today, like take those principles and apply it to the people, you know, and just think about mm-hmm. it. Like why might they be suffering and what do their day-to-day behaviors look like in light of those principles and what you'll often find. And I think that this is generally true uh, around sort of the state of American culture today is that because we have such a strong productive economy, we then generally for most folks are able to take care of their fundamental needs around food and safety and shelter, not everyone, but generally, and it's trending in the direction of us as a species being able to better take care of our fundamental needs. And so if you come right out of the womb and from day one, you've never really had to fight or struggle to meet those bare needs, then the higher order needs occupy the psyche. They take front stage because for whatever reason, man tends to be this perpetually wanting organism as Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow would discuss. And those higher order needs are needs of connection and purpose and meaning. And so like what I observe is a lot of people that just the younger folks that are desperate for real connection and desperate for a real sense of meaning and purpose, because for the most part, they're not having to struggle to meet their bare needs. And I think my observation is that this generally seems true within younger people of all developed Western countries that tend to be pretty well off relative to most other places. Like one of the reasons why I enjoy spending time in sort of early emerging markets like Vietnam or Thailand is historically and culturally, they haven't placed as much emphasis on like this large, strong economy, which meant it has left a room for the other aspects of life to be fulfilled around spiritual connection, a connection to something higher than themselves, a connection to the environment, to each other, healthy food, strong, large bonds between their community and between their family. And it's not always smooth. I'm not painting it out to be this, this utopia, but I enjoy being in those parts of of the world because this obsession with strong economic growth hasn't overwhelmed those other aspects of life yet. And I see less of an existential crisis of meaning and purpose as a result, because they're fulfilling those other aspects of life not just the pocket. And again, I don't think that that's because capitalism is evil. Like all that argument is nonsense. Clearly it's, (laughs) it's not fundamentally evil, just like anything else. Like when certain countries embrace capitalism and then in the course of one to two generations, they lift tens or hundreds of millions of people out of abject poverty and starvation. Like that's not bad. 
But when you when over they start throwing their water bottles on the trail, <laughs> yeah. When you that's... Over... <laughs> when you overshoot the we mark, late, we get late stage. We jump straight ahead to late stage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, when somebody overshoots the mark, and you deliver yeah, a message, a yeah, and you deliver a message to your population that a good life is one in which you make a lot of money and you have high professional esteem, and you make no mention of the need for loving supportive unconditional relationships a connection to a higher mm. purpose and adequate fuel of the mind and the body <laughs> you get illness you know it's it, and so the illnesses that we're experiencing are illnesses of abundance versus in other cultures which experience illnesses of scarcity and if there was a message to, to be delivered by the buddha it was the middle way which is balance a little bit of this, a little bit of that, not too much in either direction. That was the great teaching of amongst all the other great teachings that came from it. That was the point, the middle way. I don't see much middle way from young kids today and it's sad. Yeah, I think, uh, this is like, I hate to get meta on podcasts, talk about podcasts. Oh, well, but <laughs> like, I think one thing the podcast does really well for Kyle and I is like calibration for sure. Like it kind of guides us to the middle way or closer to it. Cause you know, we bring some people on because of, you know, we're impressed by their achievements or whatever. There's some pursuit they've, you know, made success in that we'd like to emulate in various ways or learn from. And then there's, again, strengths and weaknesses to, to every person we interview. And again, it's like, it's just constantly, I think what makes someone interested in what makes a podcast host interested in interviewing someone is that they have pursued some extreme end to some extent, oftentimes, right? Like the internet re rewards extremes, like, or hyper focus. Mm -hmm. I was the person who went all the way on this path and here's what I have to say about it. And then kind of extreme people obviously tend to have like a behavior in one way or the other. So I found like the, it's kind of, I don't know, I'm struggling to find like advice to give someone for like how to, how to find balance besides just like listen to, you know, find role models and anti-role models and continue <laughs> to like reflect on, on what you hear in terms of like, well, that person's clearly taking things too far in that direction. So I'm going to kind of adjust a little bit this way. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I think, um, maybe I'll make a fool of myself, but I, I think it's it, like, man. It's just like <laughs> a sine wave. You know what I, I mean? So, it's yeah. just like you, you're never going to be in one spot forever. You're always moving back and forth between like the two sides of like the shore or whatever. Like you're, uh, it's, it, and even like you yesterday, like you've done all this work and yet it's, it's asymptotal. It's like, you can't be perfect. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, um, I think that's a, a big realization in and of itself is like um, the middle way is, is a, is a pursuit, not like a end state. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's interesting to sort of reflect on sort of like you could generalize it as East versus West ancient versus modern perspectives where what I've interpreted from my own consumption of Western clinical psychological approaches is that at the center of it is this idea or this concept of the self, who we believe ourselves to be subconsciously and consciously. And that 
a path to well-being is one in which we come to deeply understand ourselves and then intentionally do work in an attempt to rewrite and reframe aspects of our self-concept so that by rewriting those core beliefs of who we believe ourselves to be, that we can rewrite those core beliefs in a way that better serves us in the world in which we live. Right. So, so a classic example with somebody who's struggling from addiction is at the root of addiction, uh, in almost all cases is, uh, severe trauma. Trauma induces a form of psychological pain where then the organism seeks ways to soothe that pain. And then that's when the path towards addiction can begin, right? Somebody then takes a drink and that drink makes them feel better. And the brain's like, Ooh, give me more of that. Cause I don't want to feel the psychological pain anymore. And what that struggling addict then must do eventually is when they're caught in the, that cycle of addiction, it's continuing to fuel this low sense of self. Their self-concept is one that I am broken. I am an addict. I am a bad father. I am all of these things. And some of that may have had its roots in early childhood trauma that led them to believe I'm not a good enough daughter. I'm not a good enough son. I'm not, you know, they will never accept my sexuality. They will never accept that. I don't believe in the religious beliefs that they have. And that is a psychological pain that, again, the human organism doesn't want to be in pain. It's seeking ways to numb that. And that is all building this internal narrative, this self-concept that I'm not good enough. I'm broken. I'm a terrible person. And that feeds that vicious cycle of addiction. Shame is at the core of it. And what someone needs to do to break free from that ad addiction, which is a lot of stuff because it's very difficult for people to go from addiction to sobriety is they need to at its core work at rewriting those core beliefs and write out that narrative of shame and come to really understand and view themselves as a worthy person and then to adopt behaviors that are a reflection of that and to introduce discipline around those behaviors that then starts to retrain a different narrative. Like with me saying, you know what? I'm going to go pick up trash. I'm just going to go pick up trash because a part of it is like, I'm doing the right thing. And I want that to fuel my internal narrative of like, Andy, you're a good person. You're not perfect, but you're a good guy. And in those the adoption of those behaviors and the retraining of my internal narrative so that my sense of self is one that allows me to move forward in life more gracefully and more peacefully. Now, the way that I generally contrast that with Eastern or ancient traditions is that there's, there's this certainly a portion of these traditions and beliefs that are all around the eradication of self that the very existence of the ego of a sense of self is the core of the problem. 
So for example, yesterday when that woman said, oh, you're a, you're a racist Trumper, I was pissed. And when I reflect on it, the reason why is because my ego was like, how dare you? I know that not to be true. <laughs> I was picking up trash because you, you shouldn't litter. It's as simple as that, but how dare you? Now, if that brittle aspect of my ego didn't exist, it would have washed over me like a wave. And I would have probably said, eh, maybe she's having a hard day. Maybe she's been dealt a shit hand of cards in her life. And she's just doing her best to get by. And she interpreted me picking up her trash as some sort of slight. But she's a human being. I forgive her. If one works towards eradicating ego, then you effectively move a remove a vector of attack of sorts. If I had zero ego, zero self-identity, and somebody said, Andy, you're a stupid racist Trumper, I wouldn't even know how to interpret it other than to be like, well, I don't know, go ahead and shoot arrows at a, at a cloud. Like, you're not going to hit much. <laughs> so that's kind of part of it is those artificial ideological barriers that we place between ourselves and others, those go away when you eradicate ego and you realize that, you know what, we're all just part of the same strange, often difficult, sometimes enjoyable, totally incomprehensible experience of life. <laughs> and sticks and stones may break my bones and words won't hurt me <laughs> because what ego are you even aiming at? There's nothing to hit. And what I've experienced is that either way is acceptable, either the way of ego destruction or the way of ego recreation. Because what I see in the world are people that live very good lives with both approaches. You take the David Goggins of the world, who one day said, I'm going to become the baddest motherfucker on the planet. And he turned himself into from David to Goggins. And he became Goggins, who then became a Navy SEAL and became a this and became a that. And then run all the ultra marathons and then just became this unbreakable demonstration of human willpower. Just incredible. <laughs> the complete rewriting of the sense of self. But then you have others where their path to peace and freedom and prosperity was, and, and the removal of unnecessary psychological suffering was the eradication of ego. You know, the Dalai Lamas of the world. And what I see is that either approach in life is totally viable. And who am I to say, who are any of us to say which one is right? <laughs> but the one thing I can say is that when there is the absence of the awareness of the sense of self, of the ego, and when there is absence of the awareness of our ability to either rewrite or to remove that thing, that is the realm in which I've seen most suffering exist because that's the realm of asleepness. That's the, the realm in which we lash out at each other because we, we do not know why we do what we do. And then we are fundamentally imprisoned by our lack of awareness. 
that we can change our circumstances if we start by re-architecting what's up here and what's in here. So, so I guess the TLDR on that is pick your path. My path is in some ways I want to eradicate ego. I don't want to have any opinions on stuff like politics and I don't know anyone who has found a more peaceful, humbling ex existence by obsessing themselves with these arguments that have no pure and simple truth behind them. <laughs> like on sure. the subject of abortion, 10,000 years from now, we're still going to be debating it because there is no perfectly pure and simple answer there. <laughs> but I, I just not choose... one that everyone's going to agree with. Yeah. And, and I just choose to say, like, I don't want to get wrapped up in it. It pulls me back into the world of ego. And I feel myself dying a little bit inside when I get wrapped up in pointless arguments around things that no one can prove one way or the other. And so in some ways, I just want to eradicate parts of the ego that are very clearly detrimental to my experience. And then in other ways, I want to challenge myself to rewrite other parts of it so that I can live in a way that's more consistent with what I would find fulfilling. I like that. I uh, don't know if I want to get into a whole like Jordan Peterson rabbit hole, but his whole product, like the, the title I think is very useful. It's like self-authoring is his like set of tools to help people. And like, that's like the, you know, you're kind of like describing this whole concept of rewriting your stories. And I just like the, the, his, his naming is like the way you've recontextualized that for me. This product is just like called self-authoring. And all it is, is like understanding your path through your past, through a new lens, and then kind of very intentionally as an adult describing your future. And also kind of reminds me of the Kyle's a big, bigger Tim Urban fan than I am. Oh, yeah. But, and this is something like, like Joe Rogan has a really good soundbite on as well of like, you know, reauthoring your path, like. Just everything, you know, this is your past path, but then you like draw the line in the middle and then these are all the potential things. It's like separate, that clear separation of like past is what it is, but you can reframe that, but then just all the infinite potential for the future. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard of Akira the Dawn at all. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of him? Mm -hmm. So he sets to music. We had him on the show, which was really awesome, but he sets to music uh, like the best sound bites of like the Jockos and the David Goggins of the world. And I find like, for a lot of people who are, I don't want to use the term like asleep, because I feel like the, the term asleep sometimes is like on ascending, because I know I'm for sure like asleep about <laughs> a lot. Maybe that's not true because I like am aware that I'm asleep about a lot. And like that <laughs> kind of negates the previous statement. But I think like for people who are like, you know, you can't get them to read discipline equals freedom. Like they're like, oh, whatever, like Jocko, that sounds cool. That book sounds cool. I'm not going to read it. But like the Akira of the Dawn, it's like very much meeting people where they're at. It's like, go to this guy on Spotify. You already use Spotify because you listen to music because you don't like the silence because you don't like, you know, knowing what's going on in your head. You're avoiding the sound of your own thoughts, whatever. But Akira of the Dawn is like putting all those guys to music in a, in a really powerful way. So I think he's like another great resource mm -hmm. for like kind of like the entry level, you know, budget level, free, free, good mental health resources. It's just like all the teachings from people like Goggins and, and Jocko that are extremely helpful, but like it's almost like TikTok because like the good thing about TikTok is, you know, you get an idea communicating like five seconds. And so you get helps people without the attention span for the bigger thing, get into the thing, mm -hmm. right? It's like, you see the guy who walks on his hands on TikTok, you're like, I want to learn how to do that. And then you get interested in it and you build a curiosity to like go actually learn in like a sophisticated way. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think like 
as far as people who don't even have like the attention span for like a podcast, it's like you get them to listen to like a cure the dong, which is like a song of sound bites from a podcast. And now they're like, Oh, I actually want to go listen to the source material. Maybe I'll go watch that full Jordan Peterson lecture. Uh, so that's like a really interesting one. And there's like a, for me in terms of like memory and I don't know, like if we're getting into neuroscience here, but remembering the sound bites set to music makes it so much easier to remember like all the sound bites. So it's like, I used to, I couldn't like pull out quotes. Mm. Right. From like, oh, I remember this podcast we listened to and there's this quote, it's like 40 seconds. Like, that's never I also think that it like implants into your subconscious, oh, deep. um, like Super a lot deep. faster or deeper because it's like, uh, it's over and over there's again. A it's a melody and like, yeah, I think. Yeah. So like here, the Don shout, shout out. out. And nice. he also, my man does like Alan Watts and a lot of like Eastern teachers you know, as well. I think at Akira the Dawn, Andrew John's, uh, collaboration could, could really really do something <laughs> Some for the world so that would we'll, be we'll awesome. have to figure <laughs> yeah. that out um, i don't think he accepts submissions but he can, <laughs> he can float it on his radar subconsciously yeah i'm gonna check him out after this anyhow because now i'm really curious Sweet. Um, yeah couple quick rapid fire questions as we always like to do you said in i don't know if this was audio or i don't remember where i listened to it not important but you said that you think like realistically there's only like 10 to 20 people on earth that are like truly truth enlightened. Maybe you're like making an exaggeration or, or not, but I'm curious, like a couple of people who make that list for you. Yeah. There's not many other than children. Well, first I'll, I'll, I'll put a definition in place around enlightened. So awakening is the process of deprogramming false beliefs. And uh, enlightenment is the state of being fully deprogrammed. And so that's why I say children are the enlightened ones because they haven't yet been programmed yet. <laughs> the programming happens through the, the experience of socialization in life. And that's why there's so few people that are actually truly enlightened. It's because when you say, when you set the high bar of saying fully deprogrammed, <laughs> yeah, that's a, I honestly don't know if that's a, uh, achievable. I would say that, you know, other than the common example of, yeah, Dalai Lama is pretty close, but there are people unknown to the public that are much, much deeper <laughs> than even that, that person is. He's the public representative for that lineage, but he's not the deepest in his work. I met one by the name of Bruce. I don't know his last name, so no one will know who this person is, but Bruce was born in Japan. He was raised to be a monk and he was for the first, uh, 22, 24 years of his life. And so he was brought up within a very ancient Eastern tradition. At one point in his life, he chose to leave which was a very hard decision. Um, and one way or another, he made his way to the Santa Cruz mountains. Uh, probably not too surprising for some folks, <laughs> Santa Cruz mountains of Northern California. And he lives with his wife in a yurt in the mountains. And I sat with him in an ayahuasca circle once, and it was a truly profound experience because whereas most of us were there in an attempt to work through, um, 
various traumas that were very influential in our psychology. It could be sexual trauma, other forms of abuse, war trauma. Bruce was there to do ayahuasca to improve, as he would say it, his state of vibration with the natural world. <laughs> he was there to use it to reduce the boundary between his physical body and the universe. <laughs> Uh, he dressed exactly how he wanted. He said very little. He was calm. He had zero judgment. And he lived a very isolated life in the mountains, free from the environmental conditions that would lead to all sorts of programming that he did not want. So Bruce... He was as close to the real deal as I've ever seen. So Bruce, if you're out there, he's a sound healer in Santa Cruz. Thank you for showing me what it looks like to be at that next level. <laughs> um, I can't think of many others. I haven't met him. Bruce, he satisfied my Bruce, curiosity. That, that'll do. Um, <laughs> Bruce. Last question Bruce for is you. The real deal, man. And this is on fuel. We often eat the same food over and over again, as Tim Ferriss stated in his book, and I've found to be true. What meal do you eat most often? Ooh, uh, I like to cook uh, four to six uh, eggs uh, over medium with some homemade hash browns. So pure, simple, clean protein on top of some potatoes. And, uh, spoken like a true American. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I wish I had a more interesting answer. Uh, I love it. When I spend more time, um, when I spend more time in Thailand, I'll have a different answer for you. I think. <laughs> cool. Well, maybe, maybe a part three is in our future. Uh, in Thailand, Lewis and I, I love Thailand. Yeah. after, <laughs> yeah, in Thailand, um, we gotta get Kyle there. He hasn't experienced the magic. <laughs> it, no, I've never been there. I'd love to go though. It's a special sounds, place. Uh, yeah. Peaceful. Yeah, they call it the emerging. they call it the land of smiles for a reason. Yeah. It's uh the the one of the things I love to see is um I've noticed this the last time I was in Vietnam too, is I especially love like I was out at a dinner and I was just I was eating at a at a local spot and so all the rest of the folks there were from Da Nang in Vietnam and there was a family that sat at a long table next to me and there were probably about 14 of them and two of them were older women probably 70 years old and I like paying attention to people's eyes and to their face it, it tells you a lot when you really pay attention and the look that I saw on these women was the closest thing that I'd ever seen that was a real life example of that classic, uh, that Buddha depiction of that calm, peaceful face, you know, of, of like the statue of somebody in a state of meditation, but the, with the most subtle of soft grins on their face, uh, this grin that gives the message of contentedness and peace. And I see it on the faces of a few locals from time to time when I'm in those parts of the world. 
and it really clicked for me because then I was like, ah, I know where they get that look that they like to put on the statues and on the artwork because it's on the faces of a few people. And uh, I don't see it over here. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see it in California. And, uh, but I do see it in that part of the world. It's, it's, it's pretty special. And whenever I find those folks with kind of the, the kind eyes, the subtle grin, not a care in the world, not a single wrinkle, and it's a face of peace. And it's pretty special. I, I see that over there in the land of smiles. Well, Andy, will people expect to continue to hear from you via Substack, or are you going fully off the grid, Buddha mode? Well, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna go off grid for almost all of September, at least for the first two weeks of it. I'm gonna come back. I'm gonna keep writing for now. I have wondered if I should keep writing or if there's a part of me that really feels like I just want to delete myself from the internet and drift off into the ether. I really like your writing. Oh. So just leave it. Okay. You can just leave it up. Okay. You, you don't have to add to it. Yeah. You can I drift got... into the ether without adding to it. Yeah. Sure. I, I think the next step. We just go to the archives, Kyle. He can delete what he wants. <laughs> you can me. I mean, I've got your email. I put a few so things in Instapaper. Don't stop this man from enlightenment Perfect. because you like his essays. Yeah, my bad. <laughs> no, I, I, I plan on continuing to write. There's more of the, there's more that I want to get out. I, I definitely want to have more of these sorts of conversations too. Um, so there's more to come and I'll be sure to give a heads up if someday I say, okay, you know, it, it's, it's that time and it's time for me to move on with my life absent the internet. <laughs> but I'm not quite there yet. I think more people, I think we're at the point in human history where more people have lived happy lives with the internet or without the internet than with it for sure. Yeah. Uh, that's what was so. so fascinating for me growing up, you know, being born in 1982. Like I was right at that point where it was like sophomore, junior year in high school where kids like me, when we would be giving a, given a homework assignment that required going to the library checking out Encyclopedia Britannica's to do your research and to write articles or essays, we could, for the first time, start turning to internet resources. But it was even when our teachers were saying, oh, no, you can't use an internet resource as a reference because it, that doesn't count yet. And then everything switched so quickly. So I remember those days and it was great. <laughs> it was so nice. Like all we did as kids, we would go outside, play sports with our friends, you know, get into trouble from time to time, shoot our BB guns at stuff and like just experience the world. And it was, I think so much of what I'm actually trying to do with my life is just go back to that. We're all trying to find our, our Buddha smiling face with no wrinkles <laughs> and our, our, our middle place. Well, well, um, I'll tell you what guys, like I'll make you a, a promise. If I end up setting up a bit more of a semi-permanent place somewhere in that part of the world, you're absolutely invited to come spend some time with me. Yeah, I would love Let's go. I would love that. So give me a handful of months. I got to have surgery on my left knee. There's some stuff I need to take care of to, to get prepared in. But once I do, I'll let you know. One thing about Lewis and I is we're going to take you up on the offer. <laughs> look for, so. I'll show up, so be careful that. with that. <laughs> <laughs> um. But another great conversation, 
I mean, I'll be thinking about this for the next few hours, probably next couple of days. So I, I greatly appreciate it and, uh, and appreciate you. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you guys. I appreciate your genuine curiosity and that you're just doing your thing, you know, just pursue what interests you, keep it up and uh, always be there to support you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, guys. That closes out part two with Andy Johns. I had a blast. We kept going for an hour 50. And honestly, we probably could have kept going for more. I don't want to say another hour 50, four hours is a long time, but we could have kept going for sure. Anyway, three quick takeaways, then we'll sign off. At the beginning, what we were discussing, you know, the, the person in the water bottle and the littering, etc. And I like Andy's kind of social hypothesis. He says he doesn't have opinions on things like politics, but he kind of gave a few at the beginning. It's like the only scalable way for like a harmonious society is for all the individuals and the culture for people to is for the individuals in the culture to be people acting well, making the right decisions, being conscientious, etc. And I kind of tend to agree with that. Like if you do the right thing and inspire other people around you to do the right thing, that kind of builds up or builds down if the opposite is true. So that's always a good reminder of just what you do matters and the side consequences, if you will, good or bad consequences. Second one is his framing, very aware of if things are or are not inherently evil, right? I'm very quick to point fingers. Twitter is evil. Twitter is inherently bad. It's terrible, blah, blah, blah. It's distracting. He's like, well, not if you only follow four people. Then he kind of had the same argument about capitalism. He's like, all these people want to just attack capitalism. It's like, kind of lifts a lot of people out of poverty. It's kind of good. I think, you know, if you do it in this way, and if you don't care about X, Y, and Z, it becomes problematic. But the system itself is just what it is. It's just complicated. It's up to how people use these things to use it for, for good or for evil. I think that's one of the things that's a common pattern among people who are, let's call them truth enlightened or aware or awake, is just realizing that most things are what they are in the sense that they're not inherently good or evil. It's just, they're just neutral. People just start less opinionated and more thoughtful before just making generalizations about the universe. Um, and third, in terms of generalizations around the universe, Andy defined this in the previous conversation. Spirituality is just the search for truth. And I really like talking to Andy because it's a reminder to keep searching for the truth. And what we learned in this conversation and were reminded of, because I think you all already know this as much as I do, you are not going to find the truth, capital T truth, what is true about yourself, what is true about the world, what is true about whatever pursuit. You're unlikely to find the answers to your problem on Twitter or on TikTok. Even though they're not inherently one way or the other, you're just unlikely to find the truth there. Podcasts, a little bit better. Make sure you're subscribed so you know about the next episode. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.